You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. So we're going to be looking at James 5, verse 7 through 11, which will become clear that we're talking about perseverance in the face of trials. Now, James says in James 5, verse 7 and 8, he says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. So James tells us to be patient or to endure along three lines. The first area that he talks about is when we are trying to bear fruit for God. So for those of us who are actually interested in serving God, we've gotten a taste for that. One of the things that we delight in, that we feel a great amount of joy doing, is serving God and serving people. Now, there are periods where we see an incredible amount of fruit, where it seems like every effort we put into serving God yields some sort of spiritual harvest. But there are also times where we go through dry spells, where it seems like people are unresponsive, where it seems like we're serving and it's not really yielding any sort of results. And that can be very painful. It can be trying. Because sometimes when we first start serving God, there's a a level of excitement there that carries us for some time. But then we find ourselves through this drought period and we find ourselves really questioning our faith, questioning whether or not God is working through us. And so one of the things that God promises is that in the same way that a farmer works all throughout the season for the harvest, there are going to be times where it seems like our our work for God is just toiling in vain, that we're not actually getting anything done. And yet, what God is telling us is that at the end, when we see him face to face, he's going to reveal to us that these periods of dryness, where we weren't really bearing much fruit, were actually times where God was developing our character. Or maybe that he was preparing us in some way for a greater task or responsibility. Or that those periods of time that seemed like we weren't really getting much done, God was actually using that. And we'll see later on the kind of impact that that had, even though we couldn't see it in the moment. Secondly, he says, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So he's telling his audience who are undergoing tremendous trials, look at the Old Testament prophets. Think about how often the nation of Israel rejected them because they were speaking God's truth. So for those of us who are intent to speak truth, God's love and mercy to a world that is in rebellion against him, we should expect that people are going to get upset. They're going to get angry, which seems a little counterintuitive. If we're sharing the message of God's love, why would people get so upset? Well, implicit in the good news of Jesus Christ is the requirement that we humble ourselves before God in order to receive his forgiveness and mercy. And so that can be a very offensive message that we're not good enough, that there's no way that we could ever earn our way to God, but that God himself needs to act and to provide for us. 
we can do very little to save ourselves. And then he says in verse 11, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. And you've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about in his life. So he gives us the last example of persevering through trials. And he gives us the example of Job's life. And I want to sort of camp out for the rest of the night here and sort of explore the life of Job. I mean, there aren't really that many opportunities for us to go through the book of Job, which is like 42 chapters, mostly of dialogue. And so opportunities like this, I think, are a great springboard to get a good overview of the book of Job. So if you're new and maybe you're learning about the Bible for the very first time, I'd encourage you to read through the book of Job. But this can act as sort of a primer for that. Now, a little bit about Job. The background here is that the book of Job is probably one of the most ancient books in the Old Testament. Scholars actually believe that it predates all of the other books, and probably Job, this man, lived before Abraham did. Other things that we know about Job is that Job was probably not Jewish, um, even though the book was written in Hebrew, that he lived in this land called Uz, and this was east of Israel. So he was probably not a native Israelite or Jewish person. And yet, what's interesting about Job is that he has these encounters with God prior to Moses arriving on the scene and giving the law. So he was a man who was a God-fearing man who had somewhat of a relationship with God but had very little revelation about who God is and his character. So we're told in Job 1, verse 1 through 5, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, so a big family. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 um, uh, yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So he was renowned in the East. And we're told that his sons used to hold feasts in their homes to their birthday, on their birthdays. And they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So a little bit more background here. We look at this and we think, okay, this guy had large herds of animals. What does that even mean? But in the ancient world, that was the same thing as currency. So this guy was incredibly wealthy. And the fact that he had so many children would have been regarded as him being a blessed man. Also, we're told when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular custom. So on the one hand, Job was a conscientious man, but he was also a God-fearing man. He cared about the things of the Lord. Well, we see that at one point, Satan, God's enemy, actually takes notice of Job. In verse 6, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. Apparently, uh, once in a while, these angelic beings come before God in sort of a roll call. And we're told that Satan also came with them. And Satan looks at Job 
and puts sort of a cynical spin on Job and his devotion to God. We're told in verses 7 and 9 through 12, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming around through the earth, going back and forth on it. And so he tells God, he says, does Job fear God for nothing? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything that he has, and surely he will curse you to your face. In other words, the only reason why Job is following you is because you have put this hedge of protection around his life. You've blessed him with all of these material things, but the moment you take that away, he's going to curse you to your face. And so the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. And so God allows Satan to bring calamity upon Job. And so Job, we're told, experiences bad news in this rapid-fire succession from his servants. The first one comes and says that marauders had come and captured all of his herds and all of his flocks. The next servant comes and says, there was this huge fire that destroyed lots of your land and killed most of your servants. And then finally, we're told that a servant comes and says that there was a tornado that came through the land and basically hit the four corners of the house where your children were feasting and it collapsed upon them. And so Job went from being this incredibly wealthy, powerful country squire to being penniless and childless. And Job responds by, by getting up and tearing his robe and shaving his head, which was an ancient Near Eastern way of grieving. And he fell to the ground and worshiped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. I mean, that's pretty incredible. To think that all that you had been taking in a moment's time, and yet, instead of cursing God, instead of denying Him, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. In fact, he gives us this incredible statement that's quoted even to this day. It's, it's kind of a well-known proverb. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. He had perspective even in the midst of incredible suffering. That we may amass all of this wealth, all of these possessions in this life, but at the end of our lives, we're not taking any of that with us. Well, there's round two. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before God. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? He still maintains integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any sort of reason. Satan replied, But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and his bones, and surely he'll curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. And so Satan afflicts Job with boils, this incredible disease. And we're told from the text that he was covered from boils from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet and that he was in incredible agony. 
So much so that he took a pot, shattered it on the ground, and grabbed a potsherd and started scraping the boils off of his body. Savage. And so, at this point in the narrative, Job has everything taken away from him. His health has been taken from him. He's in complete agony. And we're told that Job has some visitors who come and see him. And these four individuals enter into the narrative. The first is his wife, who actually was spared in all of this. Job's wife came to him in 2 verse 9 and said, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. (laughs) I'm sure Job was like, thanks, honey. Appreciate that. (laughs) It's very encouraging. Well, Job replied to her and said, You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. So a few things to note. First of all, he realized how foolish he was. So that was to his credit. The second, though, is that he acknowledged that God is the one who imparted good things to him. That he wasn't taking credit for that. And yet he does make this minor error. He implies here erroneously, but understandably, that God was the one who actually brought about trouble in his life. And yet Job, in all of this, did not sin by cursing God. You know, one of the things that we know as the readers is that the source of suffering in Job's life happens to be Satan, not God. But you have to remember that Job is not a privileged reader like we are. We have access to the first two chapters of the book of Job. And so from Job's point of view, from his perspective, this is God who is causing all of these trials and this suffering and all of this affliction in his life. You know, it's understandable for us to feel this way when we are undergoing a serious trial in our lives. You'll often talk to people who are suffering and say, you know, this is God's will. I mean, he brought suffering into my life. And, you know, he brings good, but he also will cause suffering. Well, I happen to believe that God isn't the author of evil. That he doesn't bring suffering into our lives, but that he allows it. I think just because God foreknows that suffering will come into our lives doesn't mean that he's responsible for it. I remember hearing this illustration a long time ago that sort of clicked with me to help me understand this concept. You know, imagine if you're on the 32nd floor of a high-rise building, and as you're looking through some binoculars, you see that there are two cars careening toward one another, and you could predict pretty reliably that these two cars are going to crash headlong. And as you foresaw it, they did. Just because you knew or foresaw that that would happen didn't mean that you caused it. And in the same way, God in his foreknowledge sees that events will take place, that tragedy will enter into our lives, that people will perpetrate evil against us, and yet he's not the one responsible for that. That human beings are the ones who are the author of evil. We are the ones who perpetrate wrongdoing in this world. Think about what the Apostle Peter says as he gets up before the crowds on the day of Pentecost. 
He says in Acts 3, verse 18 through 19, he says, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders, speaking to the people who probably were there when Jesus was crucified, and they were the ones hurling insults at him. They were the ones who were shouting, crucify, when Pilate was saying, shall I execute him or this other guy Barabbas? But Peter goes on to say, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Notice he says, on the one hand, you are guilty for crucifying the Messiah, the chosen one of God. And yet God foretold that this would happen through the prophets. So he lays the blame, the responsibility on human agency, and yet he also claims that in his omniscience, he, he knew that these events were going to happen. And so this concept of free will allows for the coexistence of both a perfectly good God and evil in the same world. God has given us choice. Choice that matters. Choice that has real consequences. When we choose something, it can it can alter the, the course of our lives, either for good or for destruction. We can alter the course of many people's lives, even nations. And so God has given human beings this incredible thing called free will. And according to the Bible, we have used it and have thrown off God's benevolent leadership in our lives, thus bringing about evil into the world. So the answer to the philosophical problem of evil in the world, namely, how can a good God exist with so much evil in the world is that there's free choice and that we use that choice for wrongdoing. Of course, that doesn't answer all of the problems of evil that we face, right? It just gives us a pretty good resolution to the philosophical problem of evil. The other problems of evil are if God is sovereign, if he's capable of ending evil or preventing suffering, why doesn't he do that? And that's really the question I think that Job and his friends, as we'll see, are wrestling through. Now, Job has three friends who enter into this narrative as well. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar heard about all the troubles that had come upon Job. So they set out for their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly even recognize him, and they began to weep aloud. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust onto their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. That's pretty intense. In the narrative, Job is sitting outside the city where typically they would have the trash heap and his friends see him from afar. He's not even recognizable because of the disease that has afflicted him. And so they just sit with him for seven days and seven nights and say nothing. I think there's an important lesson here Sometimes when we see our friends who are suffering, 
We don't know what to say. And honestly, sometimes the best thing we can do is say nothing. Is to sit with them, to be with them, to remain silent, to grieve. A lot of times when we want to open up our mouths, we end up putting our foot in our mouth, start rattling off platitudes or biblical truths that they're already familiar with. And so they had a good start, and yet they open up their mouths, and that's where things start to go south, as we'll see. Eliphaz, I mean, really the next 25 chapters are a dialogue between Job and his three friends. And I want to summarize this by capturing what Eliphaz says here in chapter 4, verse 7 through 9. And I think that in a lot of ways, what his other friends are saying are very similar. Eliphaz says to Job, consider now who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright, when were the upright ever destroyed? As I've observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God, they perish in the blast of his anger. They're no more. Now, Job's friends are not really that observant, right? Who being innocent has ever perished? I mean, come on. Do they have eyes to see? Have they, have they never seen anything? To take the opposite, who being evil has ever lived a life that was unharmed or without any sort of suffering? The answer is plenty. You think about some of the most evil people, the worst tyrants who, is, who have ever stepped foot on this earth, who've gotten away with the, the, the murder of tens of millions of people who've escaped justice, who've never seen affliction in their lives. You think about somebody like Stalin, who murdered tens of millions of people during his vicious regime and yet died at the ripe old age of 74. And so the, these comforters have this sort of legalistic view of the world, sort of a superstitious one that some of us hold that if you do bad things, bad things happen to you. And yet when we look in the world, there are a lot of people who get away with pretty bad things. And conversely, we see people who do really, really good things and their lives are miserable. And so how is that? We live in an unfair world. We live in an unjust world that's not governed by God's authority and his love. But it's in chaos because humans have placed self at the center where God ought to be. You know, it's important for us to take a closer look when someone tries to support their claims by quoting from the book of Job, I've heard a lot of health and wealth preachers who will tell you, you know, if you live a faithful life, if you give generously, God will bless you and your finances and your health. And if you live wickedly, if you do things that offend God, God is going to punish you. And yet a lot of times when they try to back up their view by quoting the book of Job, they're actually quoting Job's comforters who will see God critiques severely for their erroneous thinking. So it's important for us, if we hear a citation from the book of Job, to figure out who's the person actually speaking here, right? 
Well, Job responds to his three friends. He says, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Teach me and I'll be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. How painful are honest words, but what do, you, what do your arguments prove? He's like, I maintain my righteousness. I've done no wrong. And yet God has afflicted me. And so uh, at one point, actually, things had got, had got, get so tense between Job and his comfort as he says, he says, oh, that you would just shut your mouths and stop talking to me. And finally, in the book of Job, in chapter 27, Job turns his attention to God and he starts speaking directly to him. In 7, verse 19 and 20, and then 13, verse 15, Job says to God, will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? If I've sinned, what have I done to you? You who sees everything that we do, why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. So somehow in this dialogue with his comforters, his friends, Job gets this idea, okay, if I have not sinned to cause this suffering, and yet God has afflicted me with trials and suffering, then it only stands to reason that God must have made a mistake. And so what I need to do is I need to get a hearing with God to present my case, to straighten things out. This is all a case of mistaken identity. He's got the wrong guy. Verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 16 through 18, Job says, Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless person would dare come before God. Listen carefully to what I say. Let my words ring in your ears. Now that I've prepared my case, I know that I'll be vindicated. So he's got his legal brief. He's ready to present his case before God to show God, you know, I just want to say this humbly, but I think you made a mistake, God. And if you see the evidence, you'll realize that my life has been righteous, that I have followed you all the days of my life. In 27 verse, or 23, 2 through 7, he says, Even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. If I could state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments, I would, I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. Would he vigorously oppose me? No, he would not press charges against me. There the upright can establish their innocence before him, and there I would be delivered forever by my judge. So he believes in God's justice, that he vindicates the innocent and punishes the wicked. And so he's asking for a hearing, an opportunity to explain his side of things. Well, God comes to him in a whirlwind, in the narrative. And we're told in chapter 38, verse 1 and 2, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and he said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Oh, you really think you know everything that you, you can prove to me that I've, got it, that I've made a mistake here? Well, before we, we start talking about 
what you have done. And before you start asking me questions, let me ask you a few questions first. He says in verse 3, he says, gird up your loins like a man. I'll ask you, and, in, and you instruct me. He's like, put on your big boy pants. I got a few questions for you. He says to Job in 38, verse 4 and 5 and 12, he says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? And Job's like, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there when the world was created. I mean, uh, he's dumbfounded. God says to him, he says, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? And he's like, uh, not really. He says in verse 16, he says, have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked to the recesses of the deep? Have you gone to the bottom of the ocean and seen the vast ocean life that I've created? And Job's like, um, I saw the ocean once. Does that count? He says in verse 18, Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. He's like, have you, have you been around the world? Have you seen it all? And Job's like, I, I went to my brother's house once, and that was pretty far away. Took a couple days by, by camel. Does that count? Verse 22, he says, Have you entered the storehouses of snow or seen the snow horse or storehouses of hail? And Job's like, What's snow? <laughs> I mean, you know, as, as God is asking more and more questions, Job's ignorance is being laid bare to a greater degree and magnified. This goes on for two whole chapters. I mean, he's asking him a variety of different questions about natural history, geography, science, things that Job cannot answer. Things like, what happens when the mountain goats disappear in summer? And Job's like, we were wondering the same thing. <laughs> in all of this, Job had no answers for God, not even one. And so... In 40, verse 1 and 2, the Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him accuse his God answer him. He's like, you think you know better? You think that I'm mistaken, the Almighty God of the universe? That I got this wrong? You can better think twice. Well, Job finally speaks. He breaks his silence. He says, I am unworthy. How can I even reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. He's embarrassed by his ignorance. He said, I spoke once and I have no answer twice, but I'll say no more. Job realizes that he's been out, out of, outclassed by God. In verse 6 through 8, we're told, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He doesn't let up. He says, Now gird your loins like a man. 
I'll ask you, and you instruct me, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? God really pins Job down here. He, he sort of brings the heart of the issue to the surface. He says to him, would you discredit my justice and condemn me by justifying yourself? In other words, you are so intent to preserve your own righteousness that you will diminish my character and my omniscience to do that. And so far from being humble, far from being righteous, you're actually putting me at a lower level. Well, Job finally confesses. He says in 42 verse 1 through 6, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me to know about. You said, listen now and I'll speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears have heard, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job is so humbled by God and his presence that he repents. And he says, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have actually seen. That's an incredible statement. Job knew about God. He had somewhat of a relationship with God. He knew facts about God, but he didn't truly know God on this level until he had an encounter with God. You know, some of us, we know God in the same way that we know facts about a historical figure. You may know facts about Abraham Lincoln, but it would be false to say that you actually know Abraham Lincoln. In the same way, some of us believe because we grew up in a Christian home or maybe grew up going to church or identify as Christian and maybe even know things about the Bible, know things about God, that we therefore know God. But the Bible says that the only way for us to know God is to have a personal encounter with Him. So the epilogue to all of this is that in 42, verse 7 through 8, the Lord had said all these things to Job, and then He says to Eliphaz, He says, I'm angry with you and your two friends. Because you have not spoken the truth about me. Go to my servant Job and he'll sacrifice a burnt offering for you. you, And uh, he'll pray for you. And I'll accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. He says, if you want to deal with me, go talk to my servant Job. He's going to act as a mediator between me and you. And this then becomes sort of the prototype of the way that God works with his people, that because of our wrongdoing, God elects to have a mediator stand between him and his people. And this took the form of a high priest in the Old Testament, and ultimately this became the fulfillment of Jesus' life when he came to earth, that he became the true mediator between human beings and God. 
First Timothy 2, verse 3 through 6 says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, and that is Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. You see, God sent his Son, whom he loved, his most valued possession. And Jesus came and died so that he can become the true mediator between God and human beings. And so we can approach God through Jesus Christ and actually have an encounter with him. So the summary then of Job's life is Job actually never gets an answer to the question why. That's really the ironic thing. Job had a head of steam. He was ready to ask God questions. And yet, God stopped him dead in his tracks. He never actually had an opportunity to ask any of his questions. And yet, he was satisfied. You see, that's the way that God operates. When we're suffering, when we're undergoing trials, and we ask God why, he doesn't give us an answer in the form of a reason. He gives us an answer in the form of a person, himself. To put it differently, God doesn't answer us in our trials by illuminating our thinking. He does it by showing us his glory and who he is. I remember many years ago, um, there was a guy in my home church who had regular bouts of leukemia throughout his life. And at the age of uh, 25, he had stage four cancer. And um, I remember visiting him a week before he died. And I remember I was taking this class in seminary on the book of Job. And I encountered this insight that Job never actually got to ask, ask God any questions. He never got an answer to why this was happening to him. And I remember eagerly telling my friend this, and I said, you know, uh, it's amazing. At the end of the book of Job, as Job encounters God, and my friend stopped me, he said, I know. Job never got an answer to the question why. And he knew. You see, when we have an encounter with the God of the universe who is merciful and loving, we can trust him. Even in the midst of incredible suffering and trial. When my friend died, I know that that question of why became irrelevant the moment that he entered the presence of God. What do you think Job would say was his greatest contribution in life? I don't know. That he owned a lot of things. That he was renowned throughout the East. That he was very influential. But what was Job's greatest contribution? As it turns out, it was the incredible suffering that he endured. Without any sort of exaggeration, the book of Job has brought encouragement 
and insight to those who are suffering on the order of billions of people over many millennia in human history. His impact is far-reaching in a way that he probably had no clue would ever happen during his life. And yet he maintained his integrity. He kept following God amidst these incredible trials. And so the question you need to ask yourself and the question that I need to ask myself when I encounter suffering and trial is, if I knew that someday people would hear about my story of, of suffering and trial, what would they say about my life and how I endured it? You know, it's been 75 years since World War II ended. And it's interesting to see even now these incredibly heroic stories that are trickling into the mainstream, uh, you know, where movies are being created about these incredible things that people have done. And you have to imagine that sometime many thousands of years from now, when it's all said and done, that people are going to be looking back on our lives and seeing these moments where we were facing real suffering and we thought nobody was looking, nobody was watching. And yet they're, they're going to speak about our faithfulness despite the difficulties that we experienced in this life. So let's draw a few points of application. I think, first of all, for those of us who consider ourselves believers in Christ, I think you need to face the fact that you will encounter suffering. Doesn't matter how many times we hear this, it comes as a surprise every single time. We find that when suffering enters our lives, it befalls us, we, we wonder, why is this happening to me? How could this happen to me? Why would God allow this? And so the question isn't if this is going to happen, but when it happens. The question is, will you take the long view and persevere in patience? I would say probably the number one thing that takes out many young Christians and even established Christians who've been walking with the Lord for decades is suffering. I just heard a story where a guy who had been following God pretty much his entire life, 30 years lost both of his parents in, tra in a very tragic way and who maintained his faith through all of that, recently stopped following God. And it's sad. So we're not invulnerable to this. And we need to prepare. Or are we going to quit? That's always an option. But we also have the option of persevering like we saw Job do. For those of you who consider yourselves as investigators, you know, people who are here just sort of taking a casual interest in what the Bible has to say, maybe spiritual things, what God wants you to know is that he wants you to know him as Job came to know him. Maybe you know things about God. Maybe you have read the Bible before. Maybe you've come to something like this before when you were a young child or adolescent, and yet maybe you don't actually know God. 
you have an opportunity to meet him. He wants to show you mercy and love. The last line in verse 11 says, The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That might be news to you, that God is compassionate, that he's merciful. God doesn't want to punish you. He doesn't want to judge you. He doesn't want to control your life. He wants to show you compassion and mercy. And you can do that by turning to God with humility and receiving the gift that comes through Jesus Christ. It blows me away every time I open up your written word just to see how it interacts and interfaces with real life. And we know that suffering is a part of life. We all go through it to, to greater degrees, uh, depending on the person. But um, we thank you that you reveal to us how we can maintain our faith amidst terrible trials that we face. And I want to thank you especially, too, for just the people that I've encountered in this fellowship who have endured so much, people who are very much like Job, who've maintained their faith in you. And it's been awesome to just have that kind of example around me. And um, I pray that, you know, as I face trials in the future, that I can have the same kind of courageous faith that they have had. And uh, we thank you, too, for the example of Job. Thank you that he went through so much, maintained his faith in you, and learned something great about who you are. And I pray that as we go through suffering, that we can have an encounter with you, that we can come to know you the way that Job did. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.